Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program about cars and transport. I'm David Brown, and in this program we have the Hyundai Mighty electric truck, Peugeot has an electric van confirmed for Australia, the new Lexus RZ adds innovative heating, and some small quirky classics at the Shannon's auction. And in our feature stories, our artist-in-residence, Dean Oliver, gives us a critique of the distinctively different look of the Hyundai Ioniq 6, and the Overdrive panel get together to review the new Nissan X-Trail Hybrid and the Super Bowl car ads. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au. This program was first broadcast on the 18th of February 2023, and we begin with the news. Hyundai has brought in a demonstration model of the electric truck they called the Mighty. It is due to go on sale in Australia in mid-2023. The Mighty Electric is classed as a light-duty heavy truck and has an approximate cargo capacity between 1 and 3.5 tonnes, depending on the variant and upper body specification. The total gross vehicle mass is 7,300 kilograms. The battery size is 114.5 kilowatt hours, which gives it a rated range of 240 kilometres laden. It has AC and DC charging sockets, with DC charging that can go from 10 to 100% in just under 70 minutes. It will be offered in Australia as a bare cab chassis, tray or pan tech, regular or refrigerated, while a tipper variant is also currently under consideration. Safety features include forward collision avoidance assist, lane departure warning system, electronic stability control and electronic air brake system. Specifications and features may change with product homologation and there is no indication of the price as yet. Peugeot Australia is another company that has announced an electric commercial vehicle to be launched in the Australian market. Their e-partner van is due in the first half of this year. It is in the light commercial vehicle LCV category and will mark the brand's first fully electric vehicle on sale in Australia. The partner is Peugeot's smallest van, currently available in two distinct body lengths, short and long wheelbase. The e-partner will be introduced totally as one long wheelbase variant. Based on their multi-energy modular platform, the Peugeot e-partner all-electric van will have a maximum power output of 100 kilowatts and maximum torque of 260 newton metres. It has a lithium-ion battery with a capacity of 50 kilowatt hours. Peugeot's electrification range currently consists of the 3008 SUV and 508 GT Fastback plug-in hybrid variants, and will soon include the 308 GT Sport Hatch and the 508 GT Sports Wagon plug-in hybrid variants. A few weeks ago, Overdrive reported on improving the range of electric vehicles by developing more efficient ways to warm the driver and passenger. Heated seat belts was the suggestion at the time. Lexus designers have now bought another approach to their soon-to-be-released first battery electric vehicle, the RZ, by using two panels in the platform to create infrared radiation to warm driver and front seat passenger. Unlike traditional convection heating, which warms the air, this technology heats only solid objects in the panel's line of sight. 
The RZ's radiant heat is also more efficient as it warms occupants more quickly and reduces energy consumption by about 8% and by delivering heat only where required. It is said to be like having a warm blanket placed around your legs on a cold day. This is achieved by hiding the two radiant heaters at knee level behind the lower instrument and steering column panels. The RZ's radiant heating supplements the standard cabin heating, which can be used more modestly, and is in addition to seat heaters and heated steering wheel. The RZ has an estimated range of 470 kilometres. Overdrive's recent video on an owner's loving restoration of a Nissan Figaro, a very small two-door vehicle with a roll-back centre roof, rekindled our interest in small, quirky classics. The Figaro is powered by a 987cc engine through a three-speed automatic gearbox. It was manufactured only in 1991 with a total production figure of a smidgen over 20,000 vehicles. And now we see that Shannon's February auction has a range of quirky classics, starting with a turquoise and white with tan vinyl interior 1958 Messerschmitt three-wheeler microcar. Its design makes the Figaro look modern. The Messerschmitt was fully restored about four years ago and a 190cc single-cylinder engine. That's less than one-fifth of one litre in engine capacity. It has an anticipated selling price of between forty dollars and $50,000. The French are not being left behind in the auction with a 1988 Citroen 2CV6 Dolly Special with an anticipated price between ten dollars to $15,000. While we might think of these as 1950s and perhaps 1960s cars, 2CVs were produced new up till 1990. But the star attraction is British. Certainly smallish, but not so much quirky as innovative. It is an Australian-assembled 1970 Mini Cooper S Mark II. It has been through a four-year restoration, now with a colour scheme of British racing green with a white turret. It is offered with no reserve, and the car is expected to sell in the sixty dollars to $70,000 range. And that has been the news. Let's talk style, shape of cars, aesthetics. Who better than our artist-in-residence, Dean Oliver. G'day, Dean. Hello, David. Good to be with you. The Ionic 5, you've said, is the shape of the future. It's it's square, well, without being boxy. It's got some nice lines to it and a hot hatch. Yes, certainly, David. It was, well, I would say boxy, but uh, not in an um, uncomplimentary way. Hyundai managed to include some really interesting little design features on it, which certainly made it stand out from what we would call boxy uh, hatchback sort of cars some years ago, coupled with some um, quite spectacular uh, wheel trim, uh, wheels and just the Hyundai's uh, sharp attention to detail with the, the Ionic 5. And so, and so here's me thinking this is, this is kind of the beginning of an interesting um, evolution in Hyundai's design. And then all of a sudden, the Ionic 6 arrived and it's just turned it upside down again. Dean, I would say in profile, it looks very much like the Harbour Bridge. That's excellent for fuel efficiency, but it does take a little while to get used to. It's such a, a different design concept to the Ionic 5. I can't see any evolution there at all. It's been a big disruption 
uh, tectonic plate has shifted. And the Ionic 6, yes, it's got a spectacular, smooth aerodynamic shape. Think the last iteration of the Volkswagen Beetle. It's got that sharpened jelly bean shape, which is certainly attractive. The first thing I thought of was, I'm not sure I want to sit in the rear, in the back seat. Uh, being a person who needs lots of headroom. That was the problem with the uh, new Beetle as well. Maybe even the old Beetle. Yeah. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. It made me think of some very uncomfortable first attempts at getting into the then spectacular Audi TT. A little TT. Yeah. had appalling rear headroom. So now I, I'm sure that um, that is um, been probably well taken care of, I, I'm, I'm sure, by the Hoendo designers. But look, it, it's sharp. It's spectacular. And the photos seen look really, look really interesting. I like, I like the design features, the integration of the of the rear spoiler even has a little sort of hint of the Audi TT. I don't know if that's what the Hyundai designers are expecting to hear. At the rear, it's got that sloping down, but there's almost a bit of a hint of the AU Falcon, which didn't go over well. It wasn't Ford's most uh, successful design in the Australian market, was it? (laughs) Uh, The Ford itself was a a big car, and uh, that kind of design on a big car Anything that looks a bit out of place is just going to be magnified, I think. I do like the rear taillight treatment. It's got a, a sharp, sharp appearance to it. I'm looking forward to seeing those rear lights on and to seeing the, the row of LEDs for the indicators. That's going to be interesting to see. I wonder if they'll have that sideways movement that Audi's um, um, indicators have and some of the Europeans have got. That would be well suited to the Hyundai, I think. Progressive movement. It starts at one side and flashes across to the other. There used to be an advertising in Sydney for a golf shop that had the guy hitting the ball and the ball progressed across. Golf house it was, Dave. Yes, <laughs> yes. fondly remembered. A wonderful neon sign, which I think the neon sign has been, has heritage listing. Well, yes, yeah. It, it's been dismantled and uh, and stored away for uh, preservation. We've digressed. <laughs> we did. We instantly digressed. That's wonderful, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Old cars pre-war were in the order of a coefficient of drag, the higher, the worse it is. They're in the order of 0.45, I think. Most modern cars now, certainly the SUVs are around 0.3, 0.32 and that. Good ones get just a bit below 0.3. This coefficient of drag on the Ionic 6 is 0.21. And being an electric vehicle, that becomes very, very critical. You get a lot of value for the different looks. Is that getting into aeronautical um, amounts of, uh, of drag and coefficient? Well, you mean it might take off? <laughs> may well do, may well do. <laughs> the old cars that had that wonderful streamlined look, oh. they were streamlined to represent and to reflect the then uh, great advances of design and technology and locomotives, steam-powered locomotives and Spitfire fighters and that kind of thing. And I think the designers there were principally interested in just the visual appeal more so than the than, than any kind of aerodynamic advantage. Hyundai have called this the streamliner. Wasn't he the Chrysler streamliner? I think you're right, yes. Rounded shape. Oh, by the way, it'll get 619 kilometres in a range for the, t- the single engine. So that's pretty good. Quite extraordinary you know, range, yes, yeah. David, let's talk about the interior of the Ionic 5. 
first of all, which uh, I was I was really very pleased to hop into the driver's seat and see a relatively unobscured flat floor pan across to the passenger's floor. And uh, thinking that that just gave a, a real feeling of spaciousness in the Ioconic 5, as, as well as uh, also somewhere to uh, for a tall driver to rest their left leg. Mm. Looking at the Ioconic 6, the interiors, once again, they've gone back to this very large centre console, a bulky centre console. And so the 6 has lost that immediately spacious front seat feeling. I was a bit concerned about that. I really instantly liked spaciousness of the Iconic 5. So I'll be keen to actually try the Iconic 6 and see if the designers have uh, been very, have been generous with their interior space. We won't touch on it in great detail. We'll do a full a review later. Firstly, you drove it in the wet. How did that <laughs> go? It was a real uh, challenge to collect the car in on one of the on a day which featured the most torrential rain downpour, which was just of monsoonal rain, and so it was quite a uh, an experience to hop into the car which I'd never driven and then wheel it out into uh, atrocious condition. There's an extraordinary amount of power in the three liter twin turbocharged engine. And its ability to break traction uh, at the rear with even the tiniest amount of throttle was quite interesting and breathtaking on one one, uh, occasion. Certainly in the wet weather, the Z deserves uh, a great deal of respect. Pulling out from a side street in a slightly uphill situation, I think of getting onto Epping Road when we did that, in very, very wet conditions, it broke traction rather easily, very light throttle, and the traction control came in, but almost like it let it go out just a little bit and then it came in. Yeah, that's a fair comment, David. It's just certainly you're aware that the um, the rear wheels have broken traction and we're about to uh, we're about to slide. And we did we did slide for a little moment, but then yes, the traction control comes in with a note of urgency, which certainly did drag quickly the Z's cornering and turning. But it was certainly uh, a very noticeable effect. Yes, yeah, I'm, I. I haven't experienced traction control very often. It was certainly uh, an interesting ride. It was there and uh, it was appreciated. Oh, certainly, yes. Yeah, without it, I think we would have been pointing in the opposite direction um, <laughs> without only a few moments' notice. Uh, it would have been very interesting in, in the traffic. Well, we used to rally, Dean, but uh, it's been a while and maybe uh, we needed to uh, get back into that sort of mode. It's got launch control and a whole range of things that... It's not quite as catastrophic as you might, but we were in, as you say, a torrential downpour. Dean, you always add a dimension that is quite different and quite um, enjoyable to the subjects you cover. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, David. It's always great to be with you. You're listening to Overdrive. Well, we've been talking to Dean about the aesthetics of cars. Let's talk about the details and advertisements in things like the Super Bowl and a range of other factors. On the line, we have Fred Brain. G'day, Fred. Hey, Dave. Evan Jones. And Brian Smith. G'day, Brian. Haven't talked to you for a little while. G'day, David. Just a quick one from last week. Fred, you were going to ask Evan about Valentino Rossi. Who was he? And why do you think he had an impact in Australia? The famous motorbike rider driving in the Bathurst 12 hour. I saw some of the uh, footage from the day before where there was a massive queue of people lined up to uh, get his autograph or whatever, or just to say hello to him. But uh, just wondering, Evan, having been up there, 
what influence Valentino had on the event in total? Well, I reckon between 15 and 20% of the crowd that were there were wearing his merchandise. Everywhere you looked, there was 46 everywhere. Was he any good at racing? His car qualified on the Friday, the early practice, in the number one spot. Was he a tag on or was he a really serious racer? He wasn't the gun of the crew, but he was no slouch either. He did okay. And the fact that the car, I think, ended up in the top five, um indicates that yeah, he, he, he knew what he was doing. you got to remember, he's driven Formula One cars before too. So Just in testing? Oh, just in testing, yes, yes. But Ferrari have thrown him the, the um, metaphorical keys and he's had a few goes and he's done quite well. Well, I've I got to tell you, they say racing those big cars can be uh, exhaustive, but it wouldn't nearly be as much energy as riding a bike, would it? I think it'd be almost relaxing compared to the bike. <laughs> he knows if he crashes, his chances are he's going to get up and walk away. <laughs> it's not so much with the bike. Fred, we had the Nissan Z out. Didn't have time just to bring it over to you. I only had it for a day or two. You did offer to take it for a spin. Exactly what did you mean by that? <laughs> <laughs> well, from what Dean said, it's, it sounded as though uh, traction in the wet. It was a bit hairy, but I thought, well, taking for a spin might be a literal one. (laughs) They would have traction control, I would have thought. Nissan has launched a new hybrid. It's another model within their X-Trail, another variant within their X-Trail range, which they launched the new model not that long ago, November last year. It's a hybrid, but it's different. Most hybrids have the internal combustion engine driving the wheels, and it's helped by an electric motor. In the plug-in hybrid, it's helped more, and in fact, the plug-in can take over for up to 30 to 60 kilometres, which is good for urban travel environment. Now, in the Nissan ePower, E-Force, X-Trail, get that right, the wheels are only driven by the electric motor and the internal combustion engine is just a generator to recharge the battery. Gentlemen, this is a little bit like a diesel locomotive or a big dump truck, isn't it? It's hardly green. I remember reading the stats on it. It's supposed to be about six litres per 100 kilometres. 6.1, yeah. Brian, that doesn't impress you? It's more than my Jag, but that's a diesel. My Tiguan, when I had one, got about eight. So where's the advantage? I I suspect maybe rain. At the Dakar, Audi ran a couple of cars with exactly the same configuration, full electric cars with V6 turbo diesels, I think, to to charge the batteries on the way. Sort of like a a petrol fuel cell instead of a hydrogen fuel cell, David. I work working a lot in um, electrification of the bus fleet, and, you know, there's a lot of discussion around, you know, the potential for hydrogen fuel cells. Well, you know, often the hydrogen is going to be delivered by a diesel truck. And so you have this bizarre situation where you're generating sort of emissions in order to run a zero emission vehicle. So it sounds a little like that, that, you know, you're running a petrol generator to charge your electric car. It's a bit weird. But the interesting thing in the buses that you could do is use the electric motor to start out each time it stops, which is often the time it makes the most noise and possibly the most pollution. Not perfect, but certainly could they, if it was tuned properly in the bus system, might that help a little? Might help a bit, and I, and I guess I agree with Evan. It, it also helps with range, which is a concern with a lot of electric vehicles. 
Here's why they're doing it, and perhaps I might ask you, Brian, in a minute about your feeling in driving it. What Nissan found with their more than, what, 10 or 12 years' experience with their Leaf electric car was they surveyed customers and they found that from the best to the worst feel for the car, the best was an electric vehicle, then a petrol, then a diesel, then a hybrid. Yes. Um, I mean, the, I'd agree that it's definitely the best feel. It's it's instant and it's smooth and it's vibration-free. And certainly the whole family, when we've driven on long trips, uh, a lot less fatigued and a lot more comfortable in the electric car. Um, and it was, it was funny, what for a while I was running a petrol car and an electric car together until I sold the, electric, the petrol car. And I hadn't even noticed the lag between putting your foot on the accelerator and the response of the petrol car until I was driving the electric car. And then I realized, actually, you know, it's like press one, two, here we go. Um, so, yes, I agree wholeheartedly with that sentiment that um, it's a smooth, um, instant feel and it's a great feel, drive feel in an electric car. They've shown it with things like diesel trucks versus an electric truck. Mercedes found that their drivers were much calmer in the electric vehicle. You don't like CVT gearboxes for the same reason, do you? <laughs> no, they're a bit, well, not having driven them to any extent, but they they do have a habit of, I believe, maybe not in all vehicles, of um, you, you hear the engine revving and you're not going anywhere. Maybe they're better now than they have been in the past. But actually, a question on that, Nissan, because it's got the um, petrol, it's a petrol engine, isn't it? Yeah, it's a three-cylinder, one-and-a-half-litre turbo petrol. Right, okay. Does it give better mileage or more use of the electric function on the open road? Because typically hybrids, their main purpose was really around town. It's the combined figure. Proportion of city versus, yeah, it's a combined figure of city and country. And I'm just wondering whether it actually does perform better in the country. Yes. I asked Nissan about this, uh, why we don't report the city figure, because even they admitted that this is a car that's most likely to be driven in the city. They ummed and ahed a bit and said they'd get the figure to me. I've looked it up elsewhere. It's 6.5 litres per hundred in the urban area. David, I'm intrigued by um, Nissan's view about the hybrid having the worst feel. What's behind that, do you think? Let me say, I hopped into a RAV4 hybrid after a very hectic day and felt great for about 150 metres. And that was good. And that settled me a bit. And then it went back to sort of the engine going and what have you. I didn't think of it at the time, but if it had have kept going great, in other words, just electric, I think I would have felt better. But the interesting thing is Nissan didn't report asking about CVT gearboxes, which they use quite a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I'll make the comment about the Peugeot, because uh, the Peugeot hybrid, three, I think 3008 from memory, yeah, where the electric motor runs on the rear axle and the petrol motor runs on the front axle. And I have to say, because it's such a quiet car, without the graphics, you're not sure which axle you're running on. It's, so from uh, an NVH point of view, very, very nice car. David knows that's my favourite hybrid, so. Talking about cars and their image, the Super Bowl has just been on. Now, Brian, you and I have in the past reported on car ads at Super Bowl, and typically they were strong on American patriotism with big stars. You remember the one, Bob Dylan's Jeep, where he says, there is nothing more American 
than America. That's profound. <laughs> Great outdoors. Do you remember when they touched on feminism with the Audi, with the young girl winning a billy cart race against the boys, although then the father drove the Audi home, not the wife? Yes, I remember that one. And production values, David. Very strong production values in the American ads. Audi have an ad on TV right now about their new all-electric car that I can't remember what model is. That's quite a big car. And uh, it's being driven by a young female pop singer, American. Hmm. It's an interesting contrast of what they did with the Super Bowl. I suspect different market. Those who watch the Super Bowl tend to have rednecks. So, <laughs> but then Fred, I think you pointed out um, there was the General Motors one. Why not an EV starring Will Farrell, who I don't have a lot of respect for, and it was saying that they're doing a lot for electric cars in putting them into movies, that may be appropriate, but why not apply it in your own life? But the thing is they're doing it with Netflix as well. So they're cross-promoting a genre of style that they're doing there. Interesting. My kids are very excited to see uh, the Ionic 5 in the, the latest Spider-Man, um, yeah, Spider-Man movie. Ah. They're very excited. Yeah, And so that the sort of... Getting them into product placement, I think, is going to make a big difference. They want you to drive like the person in the <laughs> Spider-Man movie. Dad, why can't you drive like that? If I give it a shove, they get scared. They don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> Audi used their uh, electric R8 extensively in the Iron Man movies as well. Okay. <laughs> Jeep has talked about one called Parking Spot and get ready. I think they have two. They talk about electrification, which I can mean hybrids. They also have one called electric boogie, where the car drives, as all Jeep ads seem to be, driving through the wilderness, ploughing up roads and so on, while various uh, native animals, bears and that, boogie to the the beat of the, the car. <laughs> but right at the end, they then plug it in. So there is this push for electrification, even in the rough outdoors. Do you think Bullet with a an electric Mustang would have the same effect in the car chase sequence? Be quieter. <laughs> Hear more of the damage being done to the bodywork. Well, <laughs> <laughs> no, they did. They did supposedly add the noise after the movie. After the uh, it, it wasn't genuine. <laughs> well, there are electric makers who are talking about putting loud noises into their, their cars, aren't they, David, into their electric cars? Yes, certainly you either do it in t internally or externally. A long time ago, the Renault Clio, you could flick a switch that linked to the revs of the engine and could produce a noise like a Formula One motorbike or a 1936 Chevy, I think it was. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps the greatest one to use humour was the Ram truck, which has an ad called Premature Electrification. And it does a whole pile of puns based on the situation of two lovers where prematurity is not an advantage. <laughs> but they're ultimately saying that uh, while you may think it, it may not last long enough or it stop starts and so on, um, electrification is coming better. Is humour a possibility or a necessity for getting people to engage with electrification? Bear in mind the uh, market for the... Yeah, it's masculine, isn't it? And and <laughs> I think that Americans in particular, I think, have a, a problem with the sort of de-emasculation 
perception of electric cars that they talk about rolling coal and they drive these massive utes and SUVs. So I think they've got to overcome that, haven't they? They've got to overcome the sort of yeah, metrosexual link with electric cars. And I think that's part of what the RAM ad is talking about. Are you concerned about your sort of manliness by driving an electric vehicle? It's, a, it, it's an interesting conundrum for them. You know, you almost have to beg them to save themselves in a sense. Gentlemen, uh, a range of issues of which I particularly appreciate um, uh, getting your thoughts on. And uh, we will do in the future a uh, more f- a full road test on the Nissan E-Power, meaning electric, E-Force, with a four, letter 4 rather than an F, uh, meaning that it's all-wheel drive. So something to look forward. Thank you very much for your time. And that was Brian Smith, Evan Jones and Fred Brain talking about a range of issues. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Fred Brain, Dean Oliver, Evan Jones and Mark Wesley for their help with the program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.